If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you chiching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Williams. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How you doing there? It is podcast time. And as if... He was sitting in the White House <laughs> listening, John, to our last podcast where we talked about the extraordinary, almost monopoly that Taiwan has on semiconductors and chips. Joe Biden announced yesterday on Twitter that in the future, the semiconductor industry will be made in America. But now, Mark, what? you know, you know, you know that Sleepy Joe was sitting there listening to us. You know that. He got the COVID. He had nothing else to do. Yep, and he exactly. said, he said, you know what? I'm going to listen to these paddies. These Irish lads, they seem to know yep. what they're talking about. I wouldn't but be it, the first time either, by the it, way. It wouldn't be the first time either. But I mean, it is, it is an interesting addition to this actually, by the way, this podcast, we're actually going to talk about the return of Malthus. We're going to talk about the environment. We're going to talk about limits of growth on Patreon. One or two of you have been asking about steady state economics, steady growth, zero growth economics. We're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about the coming clash between economists, in effect, and environmentalists over the precious resources of the world. And there's plenty of evidence, even this summer, that resources are depleting. And again, that's all against the background of fears of famine largely as a result of increases in food prices. But the general idea is a world with a fixed amount of resources. So we're going to talk about that. But getting back to Joe, what he was talking about, John, was the American fear, and I'm not too sure this is great for Taiwan, that he said in the future, semiconductors will be made in America. Now, what he's basically saying is it is too dangerous for us to have an extended supply chain which involves possibly countries like Taiwan, which are in the sight of enemy countries like China. Maybe yeah. that's what he was saying. It's probably very, very good news for Intel. If you are actually uh, an Intel worker or anybody living around Kildare or anybody involved in Intel, because obviously Intel is the biggest American player in that game. And it does sound as if what the Americans are saying is, this is a strategic industry. 
It is a crucially important industry. Our fighter jets, let alone our iPhones and our laptops, but our fighter jets need these components. And you know what? The last thing we're going to do is allow America to be hostage to some sort of operation by China in Taiwan. If I was Taiwanese, I'd be thinking, hmm. But is the subtext of this that he's kind of going, actually, lads, if China invade Taiwan, you know, we're not going to win that one. That's and what we're I think to, it we're is. We're going to have to concede Taiwan. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah, yeah. What I think it is because what he's basically saying is we might not win it. And as a result, we cannot countenance a future where our technology is hostage to the whims of Beijing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're yeah, going to, yeah. in the old American expression, expression, bring it all back home. And uh, our... Great Bob, great Bob Dylan album. Well, oh God. Oh no. Oh no. Oh, speaking One of his of, best actors. John, actually. speaking of music, right? We're going to do a podcast on the economics of music next week, but I was watching the other night, Woodstock 99. Oh documentary yeah. On Netflix. Did yeah. you see it? Did you see it? No, I, I, it's on my list. I have to watch it. But, oh, but one of my mates, you know, one of my mates, Al, was, was one of the accountants on that. And he was there. He the accountants on cold. It's true because Ozzy Kilkenny was there because Ozzy yeah. Kilkenny was one of the partners. But yeah. the accountants come off really badly. Yeah. Because at every stage they were cutting corners, squeezing everything out of, basically out of the, out of the, out of the customers. And you could see the way in which the vibe began to change against the organizers. And it's mayhem. And as somebody who organizes the Book Festival of Dalky and Kilkenomics, right, what you realize is that behind the scenes, the production is everything. Nothing else matters, right? And if you cut corners yeah, on production, yeah, yeah. if you cut corners on expenses, if you cut corners on absolutely essential expenses, if you allow the customer experience, to use that awful expression, to be secondary to the balance sheet, you're screwed. Yeah, um, but it's it, it, at the same time. Like I'll, I'll defend Al here. Al wasn't Al wasn't the cause. Oh, no, no, of it. I'm not saying it's Al, but I'm just saying the accountants don't come off very well in it. But, but they half it was they allowed the commercial element to take over. So these commercial guys coming in and charging five dollars bottle of water type of thing. People yeah. going, and it was that captive audience thing. They had no choice but to pay five dollars. Of course, that's going to drive you nuts, especially when you're full of, of all sorts of narcotics and, and the sun beating down in your head, you're Absolutely. going to go a bit nuts. And then you decide to play Limp Biscuit as your headline <laughs> act and say, oh, I think, we'll have a, I think we'll have a sort of a chill out, kind of a chill out room. So they had, like, you went from like, if you look at something like Electric Picnic, one of those big festivals, they've got like body and soul, they've chill out areas, they've minefield, the major tent, they've, you know, all that sort of stuff. But there's kind of an escape from the madness that you can actually go strolling. Whereas yeah. there, the only escape was from Limp Biscuit to the fucking <laughs> rave. Right? So it was like, there was nothing. Anyway, I just thought uh, it was a, an extraordinary example. I tell you what it was an extraordinary example, John, of, of resources being depleted and a population explosion. Exactly. Because what you actually had was a perfect microcosm for what happens when too many people end up in the wrong environment, which was all asphalt. It wasn't grass. You know, yes. if you go to Slane or one of those big places are all together now, it's grass and it's rolling hills and it's all that Glastonbury, right? So it's kind of got a, it's, it's got a feeling of nature. 
right? Yeah. That you yeah. can walk yeah. away from the madness. Whereas this was on an old airbase. So it was all tarmac and asphalt and it was a hundred degrees. And anyway, by the way, <laughs> listeners, it's well worth watching. If you're actually doing nothing, turn on Netflix, Woodstock 99, Sodom yeah. and Gomorrah. Really quite shocking stuff. Anyway, yeah. we digress, John, as usual. 
Yeah. And they, you know, and of course the German had, they've, they've such an amazingly huge river that they've like inland ports, like ports like Dublin port in on the Rhine built on the river. So yeah. it is an extraordinary. So what they're saying is, is, is that they're basically the, the drought in Europe this summer has got to a level which has never happened in the past. Is that what they're saying? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So they're, they are essentially just a couple of centimeters off closing down the whole river. That's kind wow. of scary. That, that is very, is very kind scary. Of scary. And that's just one of the main rivers in, in Europe. And there's still, you know, there's all the other tributaries and all the other rivers around Europe that that's similarly important. You've got the Rhine, the Rhone, the Danube, basically east to west. It's the most yes. important river. Yeah, yeah. You've got the Elba, you've got the Neckar, you've got the Oder, all these huge rivers. Who are all which, those? And they're all drying up this summer. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, that brings us, that brings us to the topic of discussion today which is the return of Malthus, John. The return of Thomas Malthus, right? Now, what is happening all around the world? The Rhine is a good example of it. The drought in the Rhine and the death last week of James Lovelock, the man, the British environmentalist, environmental scientist, who came up with his Gaia theory, you know, the idea of the, the world's Gaia. Yeah, the, I loved, I read that book many, many years ago and I loved it and, and it made so much sense. The whole thing about James Lovelock. Yeah, this is your, he, this is your thing. Yeah, he was, he was a, a scientist and he was asked by NASA to kind of model how humans might live on Mars or any other planet. And he said the only way to look at that was to look at Earth and how the Earth works. And the more he looked at it, he kind of saw all these patterns and, and how things were linked, basically ecosystems, but how ecosystems were linked to other ecosystems and how essentially the planet as a whole worked as a, as a self-regulating entity almost. Exactly. And it, it's, an amazing, it's an amazing theory and it's an amazing book. He, he died last week, as you say, on, on, on his 103rd birthday. That's pretty impressive. That is pretty impressive. You know, but I mean, again, if you're if you're interested in this sort of stuff, have a look. There's a, his book, the original book on Guy, I think was written in the 70s or maybe maybe before that, maybe the 70s. But there's a great book called uh, The Return to Gaia, which yeah. he wrote in his 90s. And it's uh, it's it's amazing. But the essential idea of all these both theories and realities is that the world has a finite set of resources. And into this finite set of resources is crashing the demands or the requirements or the aspirations of seven to seven and a half billion consumers. And the reason I say consumers is that's what humans are invoked now to be because yes. of our consumer society. So, so it's no longer being a just a general punter. You've got to be a consumer and consume stuff. Now, that brings us to Malthus, Right. Now, Thomas Malthus. Yeah, talk to me about Thomas Malthus. Right. So Malthus wrote a book in 1798 called The Essay on the Principle of Population, which had a huge influence on economics, huge influence on Darwin, which I'll go on to explain to you in a little bit. But the general idea of Malthus was the following. He was looking backwards from, let's say, 1800, 1798, at the history of humanity. And he was trying to understand the relationship between population, economics, living standards, all that sort of stuff. And he came up with this idea 
that in effect, we were hemmed in by and dominated by nature and natural forces. That Mm. we were, as Lovelock said, we were part of a self-regulating and self-disciplining concept called the globe. And nature disciplines us at certain levels. And what Malthus said, look, he looked back at the population, he said, look, what always happens is that you have a technological breakthrough at a certain stage. And this allows humans to get more out of the soil. He was largely talking about agriculture. And for a while, it works. So you have a technological breakthrough. So give the example, like, for example, the plow. You come up with the plow that changes the amount of Northern Europe that can be farmed because the plow, the metal plow is very deep and it can farm moist clay. That generates a huge population explosion over time. But what he says is that eventually two things happen. One is the resource that you acquired through this new technology is finite. So you only can produce a certain amount of wheat. And if your population increases dramatically, A, because fertility increases, B, because mortality decreases, and C, because there's a general sense of things getting better. What he says is that history would regard it that eventually the living standards falls because a greater population with a finite, even at a higher level, a finite resource will mean that the per capita amount of food falls and living standards go back to zero. He's trying to explain why living standards didn't seem to have risen very dramatically for thousands and thousands of years. That was his first idea. His second idea was that nature disciplines humans if we tend to have larger populations living more densely via epidemics and via famines. So, I mean, the epidemic is quite topical in terms of COVID. And of course, the famine, he was basically saying that what happens is populations overcultivate, they become overdependent on one or two crops, and ultimately you get an environmental or agricultural disaster or even a few bad years, and suddenly you get a decimation of the population. Yeah, it's, it's like when you, when you have a, a monoculture of, of anything, and we have, and this is what you see across you know, the prairies in America and the the likes of Russia and Ukraine and wheat and stuff. But if you have a monoculture of anything, a disease hits and it spreads throughout the the whole crop and you lose everything and you've nothing to to replace it with. You've nothing to fall back on. You've nothing to fall back on. So that was the Malthusian idea. And then he came up with this other interesting idea. He said there's two checks that humans... So he said there's positive checks, which are the epidemic or the famine, which will basically just force the population down. And then he said, after that, human behavior changes and we have preventative checks. So we actually learn from that. And what we tend to do is we have less children, we marry later, all that sort of, in fact, in very ancient societies, they had infanticide and all these other ways of controlling the population. There was also, in ancient societies, various different ways of, of aborting children, various different naturally induced abortions. All of these were Human right. ways of really? keeping, wow. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And he's got a very fascinating thing. So what he basically says is that after a massive change in technology, you get a short-lived increase in prosperity. But over time, Gaia and the world readjusts backwards and humans yes. tend to come back, right? And one of the ways, one of the things that it, this explains is something phenomenal, which is if you go back to really deep anthropology, lots and lots 
of anthropologists are trying to figure out why hunter-gatherers were fitter, stronger, better fed, and lived longer than farmers. So our our, our idea is that the hunter-gatherers became farmers because it was going to be better for them to do so, right? Yeah. This is this come from your man Harari, isn't it? The sapiens. Yeah, it even goes back further than Harari. But so yeah, that sort of idea, right? Yeah, so that's yeah, yeah, that's yeah. the idea. So the so the big technology then is agriculture. That's the massive technology. That's a huge change in lifestyle, a huge change in the way in which we live. So humans, you would think, would have settled down only if the evidence was that this was better for us. Mm. And then people, archaeologists found out, well, that seems to make logical sense. But when they found the bones of hunter-gatherers, which predated the domestic farmers by five, 6,000 years, what they found was they were bigger. Their bones were stronger. Their diets right. were more varied. They lived longer. They died later. So this, again, can be explained by Malthus. What Malthus said was, yes, we will go into a different state. And for a while, and that while could be 1,000 years, 2,000 years, we will feel yeah. better. But in actual fact, human existence, the quality of our life will be less good because of the dense population. And of course, as Irish people, the greatest example of all this, John, is the famine. Of course, of course, yeah. Yeah, and he was spot on in the famine. I mean, the potato was introduced in the late 1500s into Europe. At that stage, at 1600, the Irish population was about 1.2 million. By 1840, it was 8 point, I think, two again, or about eight million. So yeah. you get this massive increase in the population. That's the So the technology was the potato. We always think about technology as the iPhone or something. No, mm-hmm. it can be a food yeah. and yes, it can be of a way of, yeah. you know. And of course, as you said, it led to the monoculture you were talking about. Yeah. And you become over-dependent on one crop. And then suddenly that crop fails. Now, there was all sorts of other extraneous factors like laissez-faire, like Trevelyan, the Brits, as uh, as my dad always said to me, if the famine had happened in Yorkshire, they wouldn't have died. And he's yes. probably right, you know. But I mean, the essential Malthusian idea was that there were too many people trying to live off too finite a resource. Everything became increasingly fragile. In fact, Irish living standards plummeted during the 17th and 18th century. Because we had too many people, so imagine the island with 1.4 million people, right? Mm. Then you have the island with 8 million people, right? So the amount of mouths you have to feed, even with higher yields, is simply too much. So, of course, the people themselves, their quality of life was actually declining, not increasing. Let me ask you a quick question. Just want to take you back a few episodes back of a a stat that you've, you've quoted a couple of times about Nigeria and the population growth of Nigeria by 2050 to be more Nigerians than Europeans. Yeah. If you apply the same Malthusian idea to Nigeria, will that actually happen? Now, that's a fascinating thing because Ireland was probably the last great Malthusian example in the famine because what happened in the 19th and 20th century was extraordinary increases in agricultural productivity extraordinary increases in medical science and extraordinary increases in energy burning, in effect, propelled us away from the Malthusian trap. 
And we had this strange situation that more and more and more humans seemed to be able to live on this same earth. And we got more and more from the earth, right? Now, what is happening now is that environmentalists are saying we have reached the limits of the earth's ability to feed seven and a half billion, to clothe, to heat, to sustain. So in effect, the Malthusians are saying, or the environmentalists are saying, we are just, we are going back to the firm, impeccable logic of Malthus. It's just the period of time that we thought we'd broken the link with Malthus lasted about 200 years. So for about, about, let's say, yeah, 1770 yeah. to, well, that's 250 years to now, right? Yeah, yeah, And yeah. that's the fascinating thing, that what you're seeing in the drought, what Lovelock was saying at Gaia, really pits the environmental movement who believe in steady state, zero growth against the technologists who believe we're going to come up with something magical that will allow us to continue to consume, to grow, etc. And And in effect, what you have is this, you know, this idea of the immutable object and the irresistible force. So you have the immutable object called the world's finite resources and the irresistible force of the world's population coming and smashing together. Yes. And that's the sort of catastrophe that the environmentalists are saying. And ironically, it means the rehabilitation, John, of Malthus. <laughs> 200 years after he was regarded as old hat, he may well be back in the game again. I was going to say that, you know, this argument raised its ugly head in the early, late 60s, early 70s as well, when they first thought that there was going to be a shortage of oil. Yep. But of course, what happened was they discovered more oil and yeah. they keep discovering more oil. Now, we're probably not going to discover that much more oil now, but what we are discovering is new forms of energy, such as solar and wind, which could solve our energy problem and our climate change problem to a certain degree, but not necessarily our population problem. Well, I mean, this is the whole thing, is that, you know, the preventative checks that Malthus talked about? Yeah. They're actually happening. The population of the West is falling rapidly. Population of China is falling rapidly. The population of Iran is falling rapidly. The great example, again, is Ireland. I mean, our population data since the 1970s has been collapsing. Now, that is an anti-Malthusian argument because Malthus said, as the population rises, the living standards will fall and there'll be preventative checks, right? But what we've seen in the last 30 years is as living standards have risen, the population has actually fallen, not grown. So what you're getting is you're getting the anti-Malthus idea in the West, but you're getting the old Malthus idea in the likes of Nigeria. And the hope is that it kind of balances itself out and the global population slows down, et cetera. But I think an interesting way to frame the discussion of the next 20 years will be Is Malthus back in the game or will we, as you said, find new technologies to propel us forward and allow us to get more out of less, in effect? Yeah. And that's really going to be the fault line in economics, politics, in demography, and in our societies. So maybe the new Malthus is going to be, and you're going to bulk at this, I know, Elon Musk. Ah, fuck off. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm not having it. I'm not having it. We're not going We're there. We're not having it, mate. I'm, I'm just not having I'm it. I'm not having it. I'm not fucking having it. So if it, because Elon Musk peddling Dogecoin is going yeah, to solve no, no, the... Forget about the Dogecoin. But, but him leaving the planet, maybe that's the next step. But so that, that, so but, that's our new resource. That's our that new was technology. James Love, Lovelock. And let's finish with Lovelock. James Lovelock's big idea was, this is it. There might be nothing out there. And if this is it, you got to protect it. Because this is all we've got. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and just before you go, we've started a new weekly Q&A exclusive for our Patreon supporters. Here's a clip from one of this week's questions. But the question then is whether or not the Turkish banks run out of hard currency, like the Lebanese banks did. And when the Lebanese banks ran out of hard currency, the hard currency savings of their punters were frozen. That's the first thing. Second thing, for you, the issue then is if the lira is falling and you spend sterling, if you spend today, for example, if the lira is falling, but you operate a credit card. So you buy today, you pay later. You're probably going to do okay, right? Because the lira will be worth less against sterling in a month's time when you settle your accounts. However, and this is the big however, there is a yawning differential between, and there will become a yawning differential between the official exchange rate and the unofficial exchange rate in a country like Turkey if it goes down the route of a currency crisis where the Turks tried to get their money out as quickly as possible. So my advice to you in all these situations is bring hard currency in your arse pocket, okay? You'll get a much better rate, number one, and number two, you won't be exposed to fluctuations and are the vagaries of the banking system and are the difference between the official exchange rate and the unofficial exchange rate. Always better, in my opinion, to go with the black market exchange rate than the government exchange rate. Why is that? Because the government needs to keep, this is answer your second part of your question, the government needs to keep the exchange rate artificially high in order to try and pay off the debts. So what they're hoping to do is borrow from you at a level, an artificially high level, pay down their debts and play the arbitrage between you and the debt. So if I were you, just, Damon, if you're going on holidays there, just bring hard currency. So if you have any questions or queries, and if you like what you hear and would like to join the gang on Patreon, where you can ask questions of Mac, along with lots of other stuff, like two full macroeconomics courses with notes and reading lists and all that kind of good stuff, then join us on patreon.com forward slash Dave Mac Williams. Talk to you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.